blessed, so ministered to by uh, the comforting truths of those songs. Turn to the with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 21 this morning, where we continue our series through the uh, the, <clears throat> the book of Isaiah, these oracles of judgment upon the nations. This morning we arrive at the the latter half of uh, of this series of, of oracles, the five oracles five, six, and seven. I was just uh, received an encouraging email just even this past week, just reminding me of how precious these uh, these judgment passages are. Just that uh, that really uh, we without these judgment passages, we would never know uh, the greatness of God's love and God's grace and mercy towards us. It's, and so we we read these uh, these uh, these passages, this passage, understanding God's judgment, even though uh, as you'll see this morning, as we'll learn this morning, that's a it's a pretty. Um, Sobering message from the word this morning, uh, but it is a it is that backdrop that that gives us encouragement for those of us that know the hope and the promises that are ours in Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter twenty one. So we'll look at this morning, and again, uh, I'll read the text within the sermon. So, if you will, just pray with me one more time. Lord, we commit the, your word to you, the preaching of your word to you now. Thank you for your word. Thank you for passages that speak so clearly about your judgment upon the nations. And thank you, Father, for the encouragement that it gives us as it provides for us the, the backdrop of your mercy and your love through Jesus Christ, your Son, the Messiah. Thank you, Lord, and pray that his name, your name, would be magnified now as we, preach, as we proclaim your word. Encourage your people, Lord, through the preaching of your word. Speak to them, and may your word go forth and not return void. Accomplishing exactly that which you purpose to do in the lives of your people. I ask that your spirit would guide us now and teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. For the people of God, no matter whatever we face, there is always hope with God. Whatever you may be facing even today, this weekend, this week, or this month, this year, you may be discouraged, you may be distraught, but there is hope for the people of God. There is hope because you know God. The psalmist says in Psalm 71 verse 5. For you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my confidence from my youth. What's wonderful about biblical hope is hope isn't wishful thinking. You know, hope is not like, I hope the warriors win today. You know, there's a 1% chance. Well, there may be less than that, that they might lose, right? You know there's a chance they could lose, even though we're so confident in them. But that's wishful thinking. That's a, a hope based on a statistic to it. But when we talk about biblical hope, hope, biblical hope is confidence. It's a confident assurance, a confident expectation that is bound up in God, in his character, in his promises. That he will fulfill his promises that are in his word. That he will care for us in accordance with his character as well as in accordance with the promises that he makes to us in the scriptures. Hope is the possession. It's the privilege of all those who know God as their Savior. But hope is not the privilege. Hope is not the possession of those who do not know God, the unbeliever. As Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 tells us, the unbeliever has no hope because he neither has Christ nor does he have God nor does he have his word. 
this hopelessness of the unbeliever is actually what we find in our text this morning. So you can think about it, the idea of hopelessness, if you've ever kind of been tempted to feel hopeless, this passage is that. Is that passage describes the hopelessness of the nations under the judgment of God. It is a passage that speaks about their sure doom, their sure demise, because of the fact that God has promised in his word. Chapter 21, as we look to it, uh, as we look to it this morning, we, we find ourselves with three very brief oracles. All the oracles that we looked at so far have been kind of long oracles. They've been kind of a chapter, two chapters long, uh, sometimes a, a little bit more. But this morning, in one chapter, we have three oracles. So it's kind of a really boom, boom, boom kind of a uh, passage that talks, that talks about God's judgment. There is, as we look at these judgments, we find... We actually, we find, but we rather, we almost feel it. And God's word is meant to be felt as well. We feel, for the, as we hear these judgments, that there is no hope for them, no compassion, no mercy that's conveyed in these texts. Only judgment, only destruction. Their doom is sure because of the very fact that the Lord God has spoken. The lesson for God's people then is this. Uh, as we will look at this text, that if these unbelieving nations are doomed, then it is hopeless to put our trust in them. Don't put your trust in the people of God in those days, for Judah, for Israel. Don't put your trust in these nations. Their future is doomed. Instead, put your trust, put our trust in God. Just as a brief overview for us, Isaiah thirteen twenty three encourages God's people to not put your trust in in the nations. Don't put your trust in all those things that are that we find a, a great about nations, neither it's or strong about nations, whether it's politics, it's powers, it's it's people. But we are to put our trust in the Lord. In these first in the first five oracles that we looked at, God has pronounced judgment upon Babylon, on Philistia, on Moab, on Damascus, and on Egypt. Major the some of the major uh, nations in that in that day. But in this, and in the second five oracles, the judgment begins again with Babylon. It's kind of odd. Uh, God already said something about, gave judgment to Babylon, but now he gives a, a second judgment on Babylon. What makes the latter oracles unique, these latter five, uh, five oracles unique, is that particularly in the first, in the next four oracles, they're all addressed using a somewhat ambiguous descriptive term. It doesn't quite use the, the exact title for these nations, but it uses a, a term that is a, either a play on the words, uh, on the name, and thus conveying something, something about the judgment that is coming to come to them. But these particular terms, along with the very specific judgments that are conveyed here in these texts, communicate that these nations have no hope. These nations are doomed by the sure judgment of God. And so today, we're just going to look at the first three uh, of these, the last five. As an outline for us this morning, we're going to look at three brief oracles that warn Judah of the sure doom of the nations. And hopefully, uh, it's going to just a, the, and a basic outline, but I hope that there will be uh, encouragement. I trust there, uh, there, was encur- there is encouragement in this text for us to find our hope and put our hope and trust in God and his sure word. So let's take a look then in Isaiah 21. The first oracle, uh, the longest of the three or last of these oracles, is the oracle of Babylon. The oracle of Babylon, verses 1 through 10. 
And it's really sometimes it's notice you'll you'll notice that it's addressed to the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. Let's read verse one and two. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. As windstorms in the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrifying land. A harsh vision hath been shown to me. The treacherous one still deals treacherously, and the destroyer still destroys. Go up, Elam, lay siege, Media. I have made an end of all the groaning she has caused. I want to add, even as we start looking at these texts, these interpreting these brief oracles is even more challenging than interpreting the longer oracles. Because the longer oracles, there's a lot more details, a lot more statements. You can get kind of start figuring out the context. But some of these oracles, particularly the second one we're going to look at, just two verses, it's almost like, wow, there's almost zero context for what we're looking at. And so we're going to try to fill it in, and, and um, uh, hopefully you'll be able to see and understand that uh, what it, just what God may be intending, is intending for us to understand here in these texts. But uh, just hopefully it won't... Uh, if you do get lost, uh, just try to remember the big picture of each, okay? The big picture of each part. Uh, the big picture is that these nations are doomed. Okay, that's the big part. Okay. <clears throat> Anyways, the reference to, uh, to Babylon in verse 9, later on that we're going to see, tells us and confirms for us, even though it says the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea, that this judgment is upon, again, once again, upon judgment. Upon, upon Babylon, that is. You remember in chapters 13 to 14, when we looked at the first judgment upon Babylon, that Babylon is a symbol. Even though it's a city, it's a city, but it's also very, it was a symbol, a figure in the Bible, in the scriptures, for the whole world in opposition to God. And this comes, just falls out of because of the Tower of Babel, of the, of the Tower of Babel story in Genesis, that the whole world rose up in opposition to God's will. And ever since then, that place which, which came to be known as Babel, later on Babylon, has always been figurative, even symbolic, of the world in opposition to God. But here Babylon is addressed as the wilderness of the sea. Now, wilderness can also be translated as desert, but the idea is simply that it's, it's an uninhabited area. The term, uh, particularly the wilderness of the sea, it was, is very similar to an Akkadian uh, phrase or in that day, in the a Mesopotamian phrase that was that was used to address the to label that area near the Persian Gulf that was south of Babylon, uh, just just south of Babylon, uh, sort of to between Babylon and, and the Persian Gulf. Now, this Oracle of Babylon, as we look at it, that, of Babylon's destruction. Is from this point, it's, kind of, it's helpful to kind of note that there's two main lines of interpretation. There are two main possible events that it could refer to the destruction of Babylon. First of all, is one possible interpretation and one line of interpretation is that this destruction of Babylon refers to the Persian Mede conquest. We've kind of alluded to that already. We saw in Isaiah 13 to 14, in fact, uh, that, and we see you, you would read about it in Daniel chapter 5 as well, when the Persians and the Medes, uh, under, uh, came and conquered Babylon. They took it over, and uh, um, and began the Persian Empire. Or the second line of interpretation is that it refers to the Assyrian conquest, the Assyrian conquest of Babylon in 689 BC. Now, of course, this conquest is a little less familiar to most of us today. Um, but in light of Isaiah, the context, the the sort of the uh, the context of Isaiah, Assyria is the main kind of the empire at this time, and that's also, that's also another possibility. 
Some people in favor of the first few take notice that, well, there's Medes in verse 2 and the mention of a banquet table in verse 5. It sounds like Daniel 5. That, therefore, it must be the first one. But then when you read on in this, in this immediate context, in, in this chapter, particularly when we read to verse 3 and 4, we're going to read words like the terror and anguish of this, uh, this destruction of, of Babylon. It really doesn't quite fit with the Persian conquest of Babylon. The Persian conquest of Babylon was very, almost relatively peaceful. It seems like, uh, that even practically the gates were open and, and then the Persians came in and took over the city, city pretty, uh, fairly, uh, peacefully. But the Assyrian conquest, on the other hand, fits this description, the, the terror, the horror that's described in verse 3 to 4, where uh, Sennacherib, in his records of the destruction of a conqueror, conquest of Babylon, talks about how he filled the city with corpses, and then he flooded it with waters, and uh, basically he just like tore down all its idols, and so which kind of fits more the context of this judgment. So uh, I will personally take the I personally take the Syrian conquest as we go through this, but you know godly people do differ on this. Just FYI, in case you're reading your study Bible. All right. Isaiah. What's more, the Assyrian uh, I forgot to mention the Assyrian conquest fits in the con- in the context of later on in Isaiah as well. When we look to Isaiah chapter thirty nine, we're going to see mention, in fact, of uh, the of a particular person, a, a Babylonian king uh, that that seems to be is, is the the focus of uh, the interpretation of this passage. And I want to read is Isaiah thirty nine verse one to you. Later on, this is a story. This is during the King King Hezekiah's day. At that time, Merodach-Baladon, a son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. Now, so a little background here, a lot of, actually a lot of background here about Merodach-Baladon, because I think it, it really does fill in for us, our understanding of what all these judgments here. Merodach-Baladon was a Chaldean ruler, a uh, Babylonian ruler, you could just simply say, of a district called Bit-Yakin, that's north of the Persian Gulf. Remember the wilderness of the sea, a reference to that area just north in the desert area, just south of Babylon, north of the Persian Gulf, uh, this area. Originally, Merodach Babylon uh, was one who supported the Assyrian Empire. But in 721 BC, when Sargon II uh, became king of Assyria, Merodach rebelled and traveled north, entering Babylon declaring himself king of Babylon. I should throw a map up here. Well, you can't see anything. But anyways, that's a nice map there of Babylon. Just trust me. In defiance of the... And so uh, Merodach Babylon traveled north from just that Persian Gulf area. He just traveled north and just took over Babylon, declared himself king. And he was king of Babylon from 721 B.C. all the way to 710 B.C. He basically just thumbed his nose at the Assyrian Empire that was ruling in this day. But it was in 710 B.C. when Sargon uh, finally took back Babylon. And uh, I should correct that, Merodach Babylon. And Merodach Babylon, Merodach Baladon escaped. I want to say that a couple of times. He escaped and he fled while Sargon retook the city. And it was in Sargon's death at 705 B.C. that Merodach Babylon, Baladon, uh, came out of hiding and retook Babylon again. So he's kind of like this constant rebel leader who's at, always at the thorn of the Syrian Empire. And he just always comes back to Babylon, puts himself as king. And that was just Merodach Baladon. It was at this time, in the second time, 705 B.C., when he recaptured Baladon, Babylon, that he then began sending envoys to other nations. 
to get support because he's a rebel. So he needs other help or other nations to join him. And it was likely that it was that time that he now sends this envoy that we read in Isaiah 39, verse 1. He sends this envoy to the king Hezekiah. Of course, the reason he says, well, God, I heard you got better. I'm going to send you know, a little envoy to come visit you. But really, uh, it's an informal kind of just uh, examination, maybe an informal d- discussion about, will you join me in my rebellion against Assyria? And it's, it's interesting because it's, that's probably an indication because what does Hezekiah do? Hezekiah then shows the Babylonian envoys all of his temple treasures, all the money that they have. And that's important because the money determines exactly how much might you have, how much resource you have to fight a war against Assyria. And we all know it takes money to fight a war. It's this scenario of the rebellion of Merodach Baladan, king of Babylon, that provides our, the background for our oracle. Hezekiah had received his, the envoys. He'd shown them his temple treasures. He'd shown them, revealed his military strength <coughs> that he would bring to the alliance. But God gives a warning to uh, Judah, to, to their leaders, to not put their trust in Babylon. He, through this, in the, the rest of this oracle, will show that Babylon will fall, will be destroyed. King Sennacherib, one of the later Assyrian, Assyrian kings, would eventually defeat Merodach Baladan in 702 BC. And uh, Merodach would, um, and then at that point he would turn his attention, uh, that is Sennacherib would turn his attention to the west, to those western, and we read that in Isaiah 36, 37, 38, which we'll get to eventually. Meanwhile, uh, Babylon continues to rebel during that, those times when Sennacherib's in the west and that eventually Sennacherib gets tired about Babylon's rebellion and 689 BC is when he completely sacks the city. So, uh, back to our text then. Just all this is background. Uh, but hopefully it gives the, this is the historical context for not just this oracle but the ne- next two oracles as well. So in verse 2, Isaiah is recounting the vision that God has shown him regarding uh, Babylon. He says, a, a harsh vision has been shown to me. And in this, and when it gets to verse 2, uh, you can have many possible interpretations, but the rest of verse 2 seems to be a recounting of the very words of Merodach Baladon, where he is calling up Elam, uh, he's calling up Media, these other nations that join him, and they did join, uh, by the way, uh, Merodach, in rebellion and an uprising against Assyria. And even uh, Merodach bo- boasts here of his ability to, to, to stop the Assyrian rule of the region. He says, I've made an end of all the groaning she has received. The treacherous one the, and the destroyer is usually, in other places, a reference to the Assyrian Empire. And, but though this was Merodach's plan, Isaiah saw a very different result and that God revealed to him in this vision. And he expressed it in it by with horror in verse three through five. We read in verse three to five. For this reason, so this vision that God's been, this harsh vision that God shows him, causes Isaiah to respond in horror. Now, for this reason, my loins are are full of anguish. Pains have seized me like the pains of a woman in labor. I'm so bewildered I cannot hear, so terrified I cannot see. My mind reels, horror overwhelms me. The twilight I long for has been turned into trembling. They set the table. They spread out the cloth. They eat. They drink. 
Rise up, captains. Oil the shields. I love Isaiah here. He's a great example. It just reminds me of something I read this week about the necessity of the preacher to have passion in his preaching. There should be passion. He should feel the text. That The text should grip him as much as, it, it, uh, as, it should, as he preaches it to grip the people of God. But Isaiah here, not to speak the word, but he, you see, he feels it too. He feels, he responds. He's, he's preaching his vision. He's proclaiming his vision. And he sees, but he's, he feels, he feels terror. He feels agony. He feels anguish. He feels distraught. He sees exactly what is going to happen to Babylon. So he knows that Sennacherib, he sees that Sennacherib is going to raise Babylon. He's going to kill, he's going to leave it a city full of corpses. But not only that, he sees the great danger that Judah is in. Verse 5 talks about setting the table. And I believe that's a reference to Isaiah 39, verse, verse 2 and the following, where when Babylon sends their envoys to Hezekiah, Hezekiah sets a big, big banquet for them. Here he should be preparing for Assyria, but instead of preparing for Assyria, he's banqueting Babylon, who's about to be destroyed, who will be destroyed. Instead of eating and drinking, Judah's captain should have been preparing for war, that is, oiling their shields. They're going to be destroyed. And if Babylon's going to be destroyed, the terror that 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 Isaiah feels is that what would prevent Sennacherib from doing the same thing to Jerusalem and Judah? And later on, we're going to find out, we've already kind of mentioned, just alluded to, that in fact, Sennacherib almost does, doesn't he? He practically takes over all of Judah except for Jerusalem and lays siege to Jerusalem. And the only thing that stops him is the sovereign hand of God. In verse 6 to 10, Isaiah then elaborates on the vision that is shown to him. Here's the vision. Uh, or this, For thus the Lord says to me, go station the lookout. Let him report what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, a train of donkeys, a train of camels, let him pay close attention, very close attention. Then the lookout called, O Lord, I stand continually by day and on the watchtower, and I am stationed every night at my guard post. Now behold, here comes a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs, and one said, fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the images of her gods are shattered on the ground. Isaiah was told in this vision to set a watchman. And uh, we don't know if this literally to set a watchman or it was this kind of just a figure of speech for him to, to kind of put someone to, on watch, to be on watch, to look, to look and to report what he sees. And the job of a watchman is to be, to be a night a lookout. And look out to look out for danger, for harm, for troop movements, for, for enemies that may come approach. And one of these, this lookout, uh, and he's, as this lookout is watching, he sees it's soldiers coming along and soldiers, and one of them announces that Babylon has fallen and her idols are shattered. And so we see that this is the destruction of Babylon, that God is giving a vision that Babylon has fallen or is destroyed. Presumably, in, his, in, in the immediate history, near history, this would be at the hands of the Assyrians. Hezekiah and Judah had put their trust in Babylon and her gods instead of the one true God. Now this vision was a shattering rebuke of their alliance and a preview of what would happen to Judah as well at the hands of the Assyrians. And so in verse 10, the warning is given to Judah. In verse 10, O oh, my threshed people and my afflicted of the threshing floor. 
Uh, the word threshing, you know, thresh is a just common theme for, for judgment. <laughs> the people of God referred to people under judgment. What I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I make known to you. Judah here is a people afflicted by divine judgment. Isaiah does not mince words. He is one who is a watchman. He is the lookout. He is faithful as a prophet. He fulfills his duty to speak exactly that which he hears from the Lord. And that's just a great encouragement to uh, just for those of us who are teachers of God's word, sometimes we think, wow, man, I don't know how that's going to sound. That's, is that going to be received well? And we're hesitant to speak. We want to kind of uh, pull back and be a little soft in our words. But Isaiah does not soften his word. He says, that which the, <clears throat> what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I make known to you. He speaks that which God says. No need to embellish God's word. Just say what he has revealed. Isaiah reveals that judgment is coming upon Babylon. And all those who are her allies will be greatly disappointed. Babylon's doom and Babylon's doom is sure. Why? Because the Lord has spoken it. Because God has said it. Really, for, for those who would ally with Babylon, if they know these truths... They would, be, they, should, they would be foolish to join her. You know, the surrounding nations that did join Babylon, they never got this word. But the people of God received this word, and yet they still allied with Babylon. And Hezekiah, as a result, Hezekiah and Judah would learn a terrifying lesson when Sennacherib marches through Judah and lays siege upon Jerusalem. And, there's just a, and I was just thinking about this, that this, the foolishness of, of Hezekiah and Judah and, and allying themselves with, with Babylon. There's an application of this, a, very broad, a broad application of this, is that your, your fate is tied up with what you put your trust in. You know, your fate is tied up with what you put your trust in. Because Judah and Hezekiah would put their trust in Babylon, they, in, the might of, in their alliance with Babylon against Assyria, their fate was tied up with Babylon. And nearly, they're nearly destroyed, just like Babylon. Sennacherib lays siege upon, upon Jerusalem. And again, only by God's grace, only by God's intervent, divine intervention, are they delivered from the judgment that was, that was experienced by Babylon and was experienced by all the other uh, allies of Babylon. When you put your trust in nations, your future will be tied up with the fate of the nations. When you put your trust in anything else besides God, your future will be tied up with the fate of that. Put your trust in God, and your fate will be tied up with Him. There's a second oracle that we look at, a second oracle of doom and ju- sure judgment that we find here, and that's the oracle of Edom. The oracle of Edom. This is a very brief two verses, but we read in verse 11 and 12 these words. The oracle concerning Edom. One keeps calling to me from Seir. Watchman, how far gone is the night? Watchman, how far gone is the night? The watchman says, morning comes, but also night. If you would inquire, inquire. Come back again. These brief two verses are as vague as they are short. Earlier I mentioned that each oracle was addressed with an ambiguous descriptive term, if you call 
And most English Bibles, if in our, most of our English Bibles, will translate this place as Duma, right? I think you're, if you have anything besides the NAS, the NAS translates as Edom. But everyone else translates as Duma because that's what the Hebrew word that's used here. It's, the Hebrew word is literally Duma. Duma, uh, well, was the name of one of the, <coughs> was one of the 12 sons of Ishmael. So it could be referring to one of, that this was a tribe of Ishmaelites. But that's not likely because of verse 11, a mention of the word Seir, S-E-I-R, that indicates otherwise. Seir, according in Genesis 32.3, is the name of the country of Edom, the Edomites. The Edomites are the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. So this close mention of Seir here, along with Duma, uh, would indicate that this Duma must somehow refer to the Edomites. Edom is called, so why is Edom called Duma? Well, not only because it is closely related, it, it's closely related to the Akkadian form of this word. Akkadian form is Uduma, Udumu, I think. But it's, and so that might have been why it's called Duma. But it's also a wordplay on Edom, on this name that alludes to, that I believe alludes to the interpretation of this oracle. Because Duma in Hebrew means silence. Silence. And when you read this oracle, that seems to be the response that the Edomites receive. The Edomites are looking for an answer. They're looking for, <coughs> really, um, what time is it? Or really, uh, but they get their answer is silence. Now, just uh, I should put up a map here. Oh well, it's too small again. <coughs> Anyways, Edom's on the south of Judah, southeast of Judah. And during uh, Isaiah's day, Edom was a vassal state of Assyria. They paid tribute to Assyria. But it's likely that during the rebellion of uh, Merodach Baladon that they joined along with many of the surrounding nations of that rebellion. But when we look at this oracle, these brief two verses, this, you, you can't miss that the watchman theme continues. Isaiah is the watchman, and the Edomite then comes to asking him, how far gone is the night? Uh, basically, he's asking Isaiah, is... <coughs> pardon me. Uh, uh, is the, is the night over? How uh, is it? Is it daytime yet? Essentially, because the watchman's job is basically to look out for enemy attack, recall, and warn when enemies are coming. And it's always at nighttime when your fears are greatest. You ever know that? You ever feel that way? You ever like uh, watch a horror movie? Is it ever at no like bright daytime? No, it's not. Right? It's always at nighttime. Everything freaky, scary happens at night. And that's a, that, there is that, and we kind of just feel that way. At night, you know, I'm, during the daytime, I'm not, I'm not afraid of like burglars bumping, jumping jump into my house, even though I should be because they do come in that time. But you know, uh, but night times when I'm thinking, oh man, is there a burglar outside? Is is there some creature outside? You know, big giant rodents on my house. There's that. There's a sense that nighttime is the scary time, and and the watchman's job here is that he he's watching. And so Edom is knowing, he's watching for the enemy to come. And Edom is, knows that the enemy is about to come. There's a sense that Assyria is going to come and attack them soon. And so they're asking, in a sense, uh, Isaiah, is, is the enemy, is it night, is, are we out, is the, is the end of the night, is the daytime coming yet? Because what time is it? Because when daytime comes, they feel like, oh, the coast is clear. But the answer that they get is far from encouraging. The watchman answers them, but with a really, honestly, it's just ambiguous, it's just so mysterious, this kind of answer. He says, yes, morning is coming soon. 
So instead of asking, you know, hey, what time is it? Is, is the night over? You know, he just says, well, morning's coming soon, but night's coming again. It's sort of a conveying that, you know, hey, you may find a little assurance that, that day is coming, but night's coming again the next night. It's like the attack, though the attack may not come tonight, it may come tomorrow night. But then there's this kind of statement, if you want to ask, come back and ask again tomorrow. I almost say, um, the answer that you might say, it's almost a, it's, a, it's like a non-answer. It's a hopeless non-answer, really. It's, it doesn't tell them, it doesn't offer any hope. It simply says, you know, a day's going to come, but night's going to come again. And you just have to ask again tomorrow whether uh, the night is, uh, went, you know, whether the danger is, uh, you're out of danger or not. In essence, or in short, there's really just no word for them. There's no clear word for them from God. And even this oracle is not meant for Edom, but it's meant for the people of Judah to hear. When Sennacherib marched upon the rebels in the west, it's recorded by in his, in his records that Edom was one of the many nations that bowed the knee and had submitted to him. But the main point for us is that Edom, who receive, here, receives no word from God. Because they are not his people. There's only silence. And that is a judgment in itself. In contrast to the people of Edom, the people of God have the spoken word. They have God's word. They have access to God's will. They have access to God's offer of deliverance. And they then, in, in contrast to Edom, should not have to fear because they know exactly what God has promised in his word. But only if they trust him only if they put their trust in his word the application for us is that we who have God's word ought not to ignore it the judgment upon Edom is that they receive silence but not so for the people of Judah they have God's word they have God's promises our book this book that God's given to us warns of judgment and promises deliverance to all who trust in him. Romans 15.4, Paul writes, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. God gives us his word, and God gives his, his, reveals his word to his people so that they would have hope, they have encouragement. Yeah, but you can have the Bible. You can have five different, 10, 20 copies of the Bible in your home. You can have it all on audio CD. But if you don't read it, if you don't heed it, then we are as hopeless as those who have no word of God. The third and final oracle continues this theme of the hopelessness of the nations. And that is the oracle of Arabia in verse 13 to 17. The focus here, the key, kind of the mystery word, is the word evening. We'll see that in a little bit. Verse 13, we read this. The oracle about Arabia, in the thickets of Arabia, you must spend the night, O caravans of Dedanites. Now, you'll notice in your Bibles, this oracle is addressed to Arabia. Though technically, it is addressed to the Arabs, to the people of Arabia, to Arabs. Uh, it's different from the other, other oracles where it was addressed to a particular nation. But here, it refers to the people of the nation, the Arabs. So it's kind of just, it just another clue that 
uh, God is intending, intentionally using uh, words that convey some uh, illusion, some kind of hint that their doom is sure. There's a, this ambiguity to the name. Now, the Hebrew word Arab also means evening. It also means evening. Uh, the same word, or Hebrew character, three letters, refers to the evening. So much so, and that it's interesting that the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, uh, that was made around 200 B.C. or so, translates Arabia here as evening. Uh, and this, again, just fits with the running illusion of the doom of the nations, that it's evening time. It's a, Evening, as you know, is, is just even as we mentioned earlier, nighttime is a metaphor for, for tribulation, for trials. Even in our day, when we think about, we use the term twilight, the beginning of evening, to refer to the coming of an end. Someone's at their twilight of the days, the twilight of its empire, the twilight of its the company. Babylon, we've seen as will be a wilderness. Edom will only hear silence, but Arabia is in twilight, is in the evening. So now the Arabs here, um, who are they? They were essentially a collection of, of tribes. And again, I just put up the same map. It's a little easier to see that big orange place in the, in the middle there at the bottom is Arabia, essentially. It's a desert region, along with a mountainous desert region, as well as uh, on, the, on the edges there, that uh, along the steps of these, of these mountains would live people, uh, pe- various peoples, various tribes, and they were called Arabs. Uh, even today, we have this, still use the term Arabs. But between the Persian Gulf uh, to the east and the Red Sea on the west, that whole region is Arabia. Um, today, it um, would be equivalent to modern-day Saudi Arabia. Now, the Dedanites here that we read in verse 13 are one of the many tribes of, uh, of Arabia. They lived in southern Arabia. Isaiah's vision declares that they will basically become fugitives. He tells them that they're going to hide overnight in the thickets, in the desert bush. Uh, they're going to hide for they'll be running away from something. It seems. Now that we we continue on verse fourteen, we introduce another tribe. Verse fourteen: Bring water for the thirsty, O inhabitants of the land of Tima. Meet the fugitive with bread. Tima is a, another area, another tribal group where another tribe lives, and that was an o- is well, still is an oasis in northwestern Arabia today. It uh, it remains uh, because an oasis in in the middle of the desert. You can imagine as long as the water is there, it will become a very important crossroads for for caravans for travel, and uh, it is that it is still there today. There's a there's a highway that goes through Tima, uh, Tema, I think they call it today, uh, in Saudi Arabia. But the people of Tamar are instructed here in verse 14 to provide water and bread to the fugitives, that is the people of the Dedanites, those who are hiding in the bushes. Why? What has happened to the Dedanites? Well, they're fleeing from war, according to verse 15. Read in verse 15, 17. For they have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, and from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. For thus the Lord said to me, in a year as a hired man would count it, all the splendor of Kedar will terminate, and the remainder of the number of bowmen, the mighty men of the sons of Kedar, will be few, for the Lord God of Israel has spoken. A third tribe is introduced in verse 16 to 17, the tribe of Kedar. And God reveals to Isaiah that Kedar in northern Arabia would be destroyed in exactly one year's time. 
So it seems here that there is going to be some kind of destruction, some kind of war that's going to affect the Arabian tribes, the Dedanites, the Tema, the, uh, the Kidarites. And that in one year, at least Kidar and maybe probably other tribes of Arabia are going to be destroyed. The oracle tells us that war is coming to the Arabs. And again, presumably at the hands of Assyria. We have records, uh, there are extant records of, uh, that in 703 BC that the Arabs had joined in rebellion, the rebellion of Merodach, Baladon, and were eventually subdued by Sennacherib. All of this would take place. The destruction of, uh, the destruction of the Arab tribes, not because of Sennacherib, or not because of anybody else's, any other people's plans. But it's because, ultimately it happens because of God's sovereign will and plan. As, we, as Isaiah records or writes down at the end of verse 17, all this happens for the Lord God of Israel has spoken. This is going to happen because God has spoken it. He has promised it. He has made it known. God's word is a sure word. God's word makes the whole world that we live in. He spoke it into existence. And so when God speaks, it happens. Whatever he says will happen. And if he says there will be judgment, there is nothing in this universe that can change that. And so for Arabia, their doom and their destruction at the hands of Assyria are sure. They may run like the Dedanites. They may pull their resource together to help one another like the people of Tema. They may raise up armies to, to fight even like the Kedarites. But when God has spoken, their doom is sure. One commentator writes about this passage that history will prove that the world cannot solve its problems. These nations were under God's judgment. Our greatest problem is the judgment of God. And they could do nothing about it. Therefore, the people of God are not to turn to them for help. Instead, we are to turn to God. For the converse is true. God's word is sure and whatever he says will happen. And just as he says, if there's judgment, there will be judgment. So if he says there will be deliverance, so there will be deliverance. So there will be help. So there will be hope. So there will be strength. So there will be grace. So there will be wisdom. So there will be mercy. Whatever you may be facing... In this world, help comes from the Lord and his word. Make sure that he is your hope. He is your trust. Because what he speaks will come to pass. And the promises that are found in there are abundant for us. We can hold on to them. We know that what he promised is sure. Nothing, nothing else in this world is sure. Except what God's word says. These are the judgments upon the nations. Their judgment is sure. And I, just, uh, and I hope that uh, for the people of Judah, their, their lesson would be that let's not put our trust in these nations. Because God has spoken it. But there's one more lesson that I just want to kind of bring out. And I just can't, really can't ignore. And I think just want to, because it's, it's a message that is the, really the message of hope for all of us. Because God's word is sure, 
God, what God says will come to pass. But when we, when we read the God's word, for all of us today, we read passages that speak very clearly of God's judgment. That he has promised judgment for all of us. Passages like Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Our inevitable future for every human being on this planet is that we would die. Our life comes to an end. We don't know when. We don't know how. But we know it will come. It's like the judgments. And it says here in God's word very clearly that once we die, comes a judgment. A judgment from God. This is our inevitable future. And if God had ended his word right here, we would all be hopeless and doomed. But his word goes on. Praise God. For he writes in Hebrews 9.28, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation with reference, without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Christ came at, his very, at the very first coming to bear the sins of many on the cross. He bore our sins on the cross. His sacrificial death delivered once for all those who trust in him to be delivered from judgment. And this is the promise of God's word and his word is sure. And I just appeal to you, have you put your trust in him? Have you fled to Jesus for your salvation from God's wrath? Only a fool would hear this, would see how clearly God's word speaks and say, no, that's, just, that's good for you, but not, no, that's not for me. Only a fool would say, no, uh, that's just a myth. For nothing can change the sure word of God. Man can pull all our efforts together and we cannot resist his will. Judgment is coming, it is sure just as sure as your death is. And so therefore, just as sure is the promise of God to deliver us through faith in Christ. He has sent his son once to come and to bear the sins of many, but he will send his son again. He will not send his son to die for you again. His son has already died. He will not come to to remove our sins, but he will come again to judge. So make no mistake, brothers and sisters or friends, Make sure that you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. Because the judgment is coming. And for those nations like Babylon, Edom, and Arabia, their doom was sure because God said so. And our doom would be sure too because God has said so. Except for Christ. And that is our hope. That is our only claim. Let us be sure to trust in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your sure word. Thank you for this text that is full of mystery and full of doom. And yet, Lord, because of that, we're reminded of how much your word is sure. And and our hope is found in you and your promises and your word. Thank you, Lord, that you not only have promised, not only do you, will you bring judgment, but Lord, you've made the way of escape through your son, Jesus Christ, who came and died once for many, so that those 
whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Father, we thank you for those of us here who have believed upon Christ, who have placed our faith in the one who is the Lord and the rock of our salvation. We praise you and thank you for the hope that we have that our salvation is secure because you have said so. But Lord, if there's anyone here who does not yet know Jesus Christ as saving Lord, may they have not yet placed their faith in Jesus, may you impress upon them that the, their judgment is coming. And may you impress upon them today that there is hope through faith in Christ. Lord, cause them to turn even now. Cause their eyes to see, open their hearts to believe and to receive and to repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus. Lord, cause us all to be like Isaiah, the watchman. And help us to simply be faithful to warn and to declare that which you have spoken. For only that which, you, that which comes out of your mouth is sure and true. Thank you, Father, for the hope that your word gives us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.